Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I am joined today by Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you? I'm well, thanks. It's good to be here, I think. It's good to have you back with us. And also, Miss Sara Gon. Sara, how are you doing? Yeah. No, I'm doing very well. Thank you, Nick. Very good to have you as well. All right. Uh, let us get stuck into the news of today. And the, I, I think the headline of this episode, the title of this episode, is going to be something like, baby, please, just give me one more chance. And that's effectively what the ANC's campaign message is going into this election. So some of South Africa's most important elections in its history are going to be happening next year. We're not quite sure what date it's going to be on, but somewhere between, I think, May and uh, August. So in that, in that area. And... So Robert Pauza appears to have kicked off the ANC's election campaign with a, a rally in Dobsonville and Soweto uh, with about 20,000 people in attendance. Soweto is going to be one of the key areas for the ANC to turn out the vote. They uh, haven't been doing great in some of the, in the few by-elections we've had in the, in the area. Uh, the ANC has not done amazingly. So they, I think, are very keen to focus on Soweto as a place to campaign in. Um, and Cyril, in his speech, basically said... This, uh, gave one of the weirdest pitches for a political party I think I've ever seen in an election campaign. He essentially said, look, here's all the things we haven't done, um, but please give us another chance. Uh, he was reviewing the ANC's 2019 manifesto promises, uh, promises which, uh, and he listed them. He said they had 20 commitments to transform the economy, but it only succeeded in 10 of them, uh, that they had 51 commitments to social transformation, but only 15 had been achieved. They had not eradicated the bucket toilet system. Electricity connections for household were still outstanding in many areas. Uh, they had not been able to increase access to housing uh, and, and or, or give out title deeds um, in the numbers that they expected. He said, oh, well, you know, it was a COVID pandemic and natural disasters and oh, just, just all these terrible things getting in the way. But really, this time, we're going we're gonna to get it right. And he said, in the next nine months, so presumably just after the election, because <laughs> I think nine months from now is what, June? Anyway, uh, the ANC, he said the ANC would do the following. Decisively deal with load shedding, as well as uh, community electricity blackouts. Good luck. Financial sector transformation, including macroeconomic policy proposals. Unblock the delays in the rollout of public infrastructure program and review the blended finance approach. Develop monitoring mechanisms and report on maintenance or provision of basic services in municipalities. Um, decisive interventions in the 36 municipalities routinely failing to pay their employees, urgently intervene to rebuild and modernize Transnet and Metro Rail, urgently intervene to prevent the collapse of the post office and the SABC, uh, ensure Parliament passes all outstanding bills by November, the NHI, pension reform, public procurement, expropriation of post office bills, and also make sure that uh, the election would be a public holiday. Herman, let's start with you. Um, is this pitch going to work? What do you make of what he's saying? It's very interesting that once again, we get to election time and all of the things that take up the kind of ideological talking space in the opinion pages, you know, stuff like B, stuff like land, it's not really featuring in this ANC manifesto promise in, in, in Bromopause's initial sort of pitch here. What do you think? Well, 
Yeah. So the the, the question as to whether <clears throat> whether it will work, I think not. Um, if if there's one thing that we can say for sure is that the best election that the ANC ever had was in 2004. And the election in 2004 was after 10 years of the ANC being in government. And at the golden era of when economic success and growth in South Africa really took off, it was after a decade that saw the number of people in black South Africans in work essentially double from around 4 million to 9 million. It saw vast increases in the numbers of access to running water, electricity, access to schooling. So after 10 years, the ANC actually had something to point at. It was, I mean, unemployment was in the mid-20s. It's, it's practically, we had a budget surplus. It, we rolled out social grants South Africa. I mean, it, it was practically Neverland or Narnia, depending on how you look at it. It, it, it was just this, this point of, of um, upward potential. And the ANC felt it. The ANC didn't go into that election saying, this is what we are going to do. If we all remember that for many years, the ANC have always had this theme of we have a good story to tell. And for the first decade in power, that was broadly true. There were many mistakes. There were many errors. But if we look at what worked for the ANC in the past, it was usually the question of delivery. Have they delivered? Now, I always say South African vote, the South African voter might not be sophisticated, but they are certainly not stupid. And if you look at this list of ambitions, you see it fail on at least three levels. Number one, it simply lacks credibility. And that is there for all to see. If we assume that, that uh, you know, B, uh, blackouts um, and load shedding started in 2008, and in 2015, Sir Ramaphosa was appointed to head the turnaround of ESCOM. And in 2019, he promised the end of load shedding. And in 2021, he said load shedding will soon be a thing of the past. And he now comes to the voter and says within the next nine months, load shedding will be a thing of the past. I mean, I really, I, I, there's no one taking that seriously. No one taking that seriously. I, I don't think even Ramaphosa himself to his credit. So the first problem is it lacks credibility. The second problem is it lacks relevance to actually the application of ordinary life in South Africa. IRR polling over the last 15 years, DA polling, ANC polling have showed what the priorities of South Africans are. And they are across the board, straightforward stuff, job creation, one of the great failures of the ANC has been on job creation. We see financial sector transformation, macroeconomic policy proposals, blended finance approach, monitoring mechanisms. I don't think the word job or creation was actually mentioned in any of those things that are to be accomplished over the next nine months. So it's not credible. It's not relevant. And then the last problem is it is for all 
purposes, the worst positioning the ANC could put itself in, because it is the indirect opposition to what a party like the DA can actually boast of. If we list those issues, de decisively deal with load shedding, the DA beats them on that. Financial sector transformation, it's simply not relevant. And if we look at where unemployment is lowest, the most reliable form of sectoral and financial and economic transformation, the DA beats them on that. Unblock the delays in the rollout of public infrastructure. Again, they are not the victors there. Develop monitoring mechanisms. Again, they fail. Decisive interventions. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it's not credible, it's not relevant, and it's too little too late in a political climate that simply won't accept their nonsense. This is why they are polling either equally or behind the, uh, the DA in Gauteng. This is why they are likely to lose Gauteng. This is why they are likely to lose KZN, because they simply cannot offer a program that's credible, relevant, and actually will be anywhere close to competing with the political offerings of their opponents, who just have to say, broken promises are your speciality, Mr. Ramphorda. So as I suggested at the beginning of this episode, there's this kind of, you know, sort of scumbag boyfriend type of feel to all of this, which is, uh, you know, you imagine a relationship with a boyfriend has stolen money, he's cheated on his girlfriend, he's done all these terrible things, and she says, okay, I've had enough, I'm kicking you out, we're done. And he goes, oh, baby, please, one more chance, I'll change, everything will be wonderful, it's the beginning of a new, I'm turning over a new leaf, look, 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 I'm going to do all these wonderful things in just the next couple of days, just please, please commit to another year on the lease with me. And um, <laughs> on that, on that, that pitch might have worked, might have worked in 2019 for Ramaphosa. He was new enough and unblemished enough and charming enough for many South Africans to not absolutely despise the man, that he is not the same Ramaphosa that he was then. So, I mean, that's cute begging. <laughs> Sarah, what do you make of all this? Well, I think I'll just refer to the one issue which I, can, I think kind of says it all. When he says, he starts off by saying we will deal decisively with resolving load shedding, um, then the question has to be asked, well, if they're not dealing with it decisively now, why would we believe that they would deal with it decisively after the election? Um, not so, just load shedding, also community electricity blackouts. I mean, and, uh, there's <laughs> decades worth of repairs that need to be done to do that. No, he's, um, you know, I think the man relies on his soft, oleaginous voice to convince us. And the problem is, I think, uh, hopefully, South Africans are looking at the content and the substance and not the delivery, or not delivery, as the case may be. Yes. Uh, I, I do wonder, because this is not a strong start to the ANC's election campaign. Now, to be fair, the ANC often kind of builds up its election campaign, like kind of well, it uh, it has this infrastructure all over the place, and even though it's not like the most efficient infrastructure, it's able to still compete in a big way. It, you know, it'll, you'll see they'll probably have the most posters, they'll have big billboards, they'll have lots of people going around and campaigning, um, and the election campaign in the last two weeks is usually, I think, relatively strong. 
Uh, also, inevitably, there will be some kind of like a race controversy or something in the election, as happens every time, and that'll be used to target the opposition, probably the DA, but maybe some of the other parties too. Um, but I think that is one of the things that the ANC has got a, that is a little bit different about this election is the ANC, it looks like it might be having to fight off a little bit uh, challenges from many directions. So the last election, it was mainly between the, the, the challenges it was facing was mainly from the DA and the EFF, um, this time, I think they're probably going to also have to fight against the IFP in a very serious way. Uh, maybe Action is, say, Build One South Africa, the Ravonia Circle Party, uh, what are they called? Rise Mzanti. Rise yes. So there's all these new parties kind of attacking and hoping to get some ANC votes in various areas. Um, and I think that this may be putting them under, this may put their election campaign under a little bit more strain than we've seen in the past because they're going to have to have a more complicated message. And it relies it relies on a uh, capacity that I think has largely eroded in the ANC. Um, the ANC has always had a formidable um, election machine, uh, and but this is the party that has failed to pay its own employees. This is the party that is Fikile Mbalula um, at the head of its organisational wing. It is not well equipped to go into this election now. Does that mean that, you know, ah, oh, it's it's curtains for the NC? Of course not. You never write off the NC. They are terribly good at what they do, and what they do is sort of um, manage power and exploit division opportunity or not even sow them. But what is striking to me, as um, if, if we look at, you know, I, I love myself a bit of an opinion poll, and if we do look at this, and we accept that this is the best the party's strategists could come up with based on the data at their disposal. We can draw a few inferences in alternative from this. Either their data sucks, in which case their machinery has fallen apart, so they can't actually monitor public sentiment properly anymore, or they score so low on the things that actually matter to South Africans that they have to pivot to the things that they perform well on in terms of perception, in which case, you know, good luck winning an election on post office reform. I mean, that might have been a sexy issue in, in, in some rotten borough constituency in Britain in 1776. I mean, that, that might have been very, very interesting, but I've never... I've never heard someone, you know, an American politician say, you know, we're going to deal with Al-Qaeda now, but next we're going to tackle those goddamn post offices. So the problem is, if this is your greatest hits, if this is your crowd pleaser, if this is your nation dorma, then either your data sucks or you frankly have nothing else to offer. Very interesting to see, but uh, I think not a great start for them. Um but maybe they're trying to go for a you know we're honest and humble approach here because they know that they've <laughs> they've 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 made a lot of promises to their core voters so many times. Um, but let's go on to our our next story, and this is intimately connected to the first one, and it is uh, why the ANC is not going to actually be able to fulfil a lot of its election promises, and that is based off of some data coming out from the National Treasury, who says that. Uh, Things are not looking good on the budget front. Um, uh, originally, the, uh, the Treasury had uh, proposed that it was looking to stabilize debt to GDP at about 70%. And this is already at about 72%. 
um, uh, the the fiscal deficit this year is expected to be much greater than uh, Treasury had projected, which I don't think is particularly a surprise. Treasury is often massively over optimistic in its projections. Um, the fiscal deficit for 2023 is set to be between six and six and a half percent of GDP, which is much higher than the target of four percent, uh, which is what the finance minister had planned for in the budget. Um, there's been a big, uh, uh, so so we, we've gone from having this relatively low debt of 500 billion rand, 2006 to 4.7 trillion rand debt in 2022. Uh, and this will hit 6 trillion by 2025. So this is exactly how you see the debt trap uh, happening is that it starts off kind of slow, but it, it really accelerates. Uh, and there's a lot of fear now in government that, you know, that we're heading for a great fiscal debt trap. Uh, something like um, just paying the interest on the debt we already have is already a very significant line item in the government's budget. I think it's second or third place in terms of what we spend. So it's like similar to how much we spend on education for the whole country. In light of this, Finance Minister uh, Inok Konongwana is saying uh, that the government needs to take some drastic proposals. He's putting around a draft document which has been leaked to the media which says they're going to cut spending in a large number of places, place a moratorium on advertising new hires um, for government departments, and also forcing departments to find other ways other than the fiscus to fund wage increases. Sarah, what do you make of all this? Well, um, I think there are probably three points, the one of which doesn't may not appear to be direct, but it says something about the ANC. Gurungwan is desperately saying we have no money although none of his proposals are going to bring in the sort of money he needs to reverse all these problems or even, yeah, to reverse them. Um, he, he does also say that one of the problems was the public service got too high increases this year, um, and that was a factor. So obviously they didn't expect the uh, the public uh, sector wage uh, negotiations to end up with things like 7.5% increases. But these these are still tinkering around the edges, and one can go into the million things they need to do to to um, to make things different, like you know proper policies that cre- that commit to create growth, and that leads to the point I want to make is the if you think about it, I mean South Africa used to be the richest, highest GDP on the continent. Um, now I think it's Nigeria with Egypt following, followed by us. Um, and if you look at countries like Rwanda, Kenya, Botswana, a whole lot of places, they have somewhere between a little bit of growth and a considerable amount of growth. Um, we have none. We have none. In fact, I'm not sure if we aren't about heading head to negative growth, if there's such a thing. Um, and the, the thing is, we can't blame it on COVID th- because we didn't. I think, we're getting, we, we, I think we're getting GDP numbers in the next couple of days. Oh, okay. That's great. Watch with interest. But the bottom line is that we didn't have a special COVID. We suffered the same COVID as everybody in the rest of the world suffered. So we can't use that as an excuse for how our, our growth and our monetary situation has been affected. And that's the, that's, that's the bottom I mean, if I were the, if I were the ANC, I, I mean, you can try and live off your sort of wonderful performance over BRICS, but it's actually a huge, huge embarrassment because everybody else that you would be looking at to join BRICS or who even wants to join BRICS, doesn't matter what their human rights records are, they're growing more than we do. Everyone's growing more than we are, except for Russia. But we know why Russia's not growing. So, you know, it's, it's, 
the bottom line is the good news, good news. Can't afford the NHI, can't afford expropriation, can't afford the, the land court, can't afford any of these horrible things. So maybe that's the good news. You can't afford to do things you haven't yet spent money on. Bully for you. That's it. Indeed. Um, yeah. The, and the, the outlook is not looking very good because, as you say, you know, China is still growing at probably, what, 2 3% or something. I, I don't know yeah. what the latest figures are. Um, but that's way down for them, and that is negatively going to affect us, particularly when it comes to something like exporting raw materials, which is one of the things that has actually saved. You know, we talked back in 2019, we were talking a lot about the fiscal plus stuff, and it was... Uh, and that only got worse, of course, when the lockdowns happened and the government was spending all this money and the COVID relief grant and all that kind of stuff. And then they got saved a little bit in 2021 when the, uh, there was a sudden boom in commodity prices and the mines were able to to basically cover some of the, the, the hole in the fiscus. Uh, so, just just on think... that, just to say that we have no commodity prices and we have no railway lines to send our stuff down well, to the that, that's part of the problem uh, but part of the problem is I, sus- I wouldn't be surprised if sort of the, the trend over the next couple of years is that that the, the demand is down for those things when you see an economy like China struggling but you know maybe we can make up the difference and sell to other places like India or something like that but uh, considering how much has been driven by of South Africa's growth since the ANC took power has been driven by basically selling more materials to China and other things like that that's not a great place to be in when their economy doesn't seem to be doing so hot. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I suspect that we're going to have a turbulent rest of the decade. Um, and that means that, in other words, we're not going to get tailwinds for our economy and our fiscus if the government doesn't do something quickly. And the political ramifications are huge because one of the reasons that people do vote for the ANC is because it has rolled out this welfare state. that gives people grants, it gives people houses, it gives people uh, water and electricity, and you can't fund that well. You're going to have a problem. Herman, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think what, what also makes our uh, problem worse than in 2019 is to uh, capitalize on a commodity boom. You need um, manufacturing to actually be operational at a moderate level of output. Um, load shedding is making that difficult, increasing um, mafioso tactics in the manufacturing and mining sector is, sector is making that difficult. And then you've also got, you know, just the problem of labor productivity. So even if there were a commodity boom, we wouldn't be able to capitalize on it fully uh, because, you know, whilst the, 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 the situation was there for us to, position ourselves for the benefit of it, we simply didn't. Instead of patching the hole, we shot a few further holes in it. But the problem is also that um, you see the ANC splitting, not in the sort of factional way, but in the sense that they are promising A, in the previous story we discussed, with no, um, and then they are facing the fiscal reality of B, with no ability, as Sarah points out, to fund stuff like the NHI, which, if we're going to be charitable, costs about 300 billion rand a year, closer likely to 700 billion rand a year. So that it, it, it's a good in the one sense that it, it portrays this wish list of, of this uncredible, irrelevant, too little, too late wish list, even in and of itself, to be unworkable. But that does leave a very, very worrying option left for the ANC being the you know, uh, vile 
organization that it is. And that is why we ask all religious people to pray for, let's say, the governor of the Reserve Bank. We are sitting in a situation where the Reserve Bank's control over the money supply is going to become increasingly targeted um, because the, the idea of having not enough money, some in the ANC will say, well, then just print more. Um, and that is where the independence of the Reserve Bank and the spine of the governor of the Reserve Bank is going to absolutely be key. If you promise A, you face reality B, then you probably go for C, which stands for currency. And that is such a lame segue. But the point is made. The, um, so that, that's the one point, is that the, we, we will not get away from, from this question of, of the Reserve Bank and control of the money supply quickly. But then two other points that are worth mentioning. Gorongwana has just made the job of the ANC in Gauteng and Tsane very difficult. The Tsane government has been saying we cannot afford wage increases for municipal workers. Gorongwana has just thrown his lot and his momentum behind that case, saying that there's no money to pay that. So I think if the coalition government and Sane have their wits about them, they'll be able to muscle this into some political capital to say, look, we're not saying this. The Minister of Finance is saying this. And then the last third point that I want to make is whether Gorongwana is now at a point of growing in his influence in cabinet, or is he at the point of having reached his maximum relevance in cabinet? We saw with Tito Mbuweni warning his ANC colleagues, he had to define in parliament was it what, a, what a sovereign debt crisis is um, in, in sort of fiscal management for dummies terms. And he didn't stick it out to even make that point because he was just losing political, political capital. And I think this is something that Terence Corrigan, our great colleague, once said, is that one of the biggest differences between Mbeki, Mandela on the one hand, and Zuma and Ramaphosa even more so on the other, is that Mbeki and Mandela backed their finance minister. Ramaphosa has never done that. Ramaphosa's finance minister has never been able to act with the support of the president, making the president weak, but the finance minister even weaker. So either Gorongwana is on the verge of building his political presence in, cap in, in cabinet to such an extent that he really can start calling the tunes, or he is, has now reached the peak of his political influence within cabinet, and we are going to see him decline in relevance, importance, and political capital, as Mbaweni did over the next year or so. So that's something to definitely keep an eye on. If it seems like Gorongwana is on the up, or he's on the stable trajectory of sticking to his guns and uh, he isn't chastised by Fikile Mbalula, he isn't briefed against by those in the Treasury or the Presidency, then that's on the whole good news for South Africa because Gorongwana and Lesejo Kanyaho are at this stage two of our best bets until you know the country steps up and realizes that the power that we've given government has come back to bite us in the behind. But Gorongwana's political standing, that's a thing that I'm going to keep a close eye on over the next year. All right, let's very briefly move on to our last topic. Uh, and this is connected to that horrible fire that killed over 70 people last week. Uh, it, the government in question was a uh, owned by, by the city of Johannesburg, I believe. Um, 
and it was had been hijacked or at least it was very badly managed and it had fallen essentially out of the city's control leading to the terrible conditions that created the fire uh, which saw all those people die and uh, in response to this government has freaked out a bit i think because it was such a horrifying story it's one of the worst sort of death tolls from a, from a major fire in building um, in recent years across the whole world, I believe, actually. Um, I know that in Britain they had the, the Glenfield Towers uh, thing, which was similar number of people dead, and that was a huge scandal there. So government uh, has said that the Republic Apartment Works is beginning back is beginning a thing called its Bing, Operation Bring Back program, uh, which is an attempt to gain control regain control over huge numbers of, go of government. So this is just national government. It doesn't include the municipalities, buildings which have been hijacked or basically have, uh, the government has lost control of. Um, out of 29,000 properties owned by national government, 1,260 of them are uh, considered hijacked by the Department of Public Works. Sarah, what should government be doing here? getting out of the way and get somebody who can do something properly, get in and do it. Um, because obviously if you don't, if you don't do something as soon as possible, these things literally just decay in front of your very eyes. And I wouldn't have trusted uh, the municipality to have kept any decent eye on this building or, or building similar to it. Um, it. It is, it does have problems in the fact that the, the law benefits tenants, you know, you have to, uh, take into account whether there are children in a building, elderly, disabled, before you can evict them. Um, it, the, the Taking back buildings that have been hijacked is, is horrendously difficult because you're dealing with, with, with crime on a, on a very big level. Um, but, you know, what can you say? You... One of the things I should be, um, one of the things I should be doing is trying to get change to the very legislation it put in in 1994. Um, to give more power back to landlords, including themselves, as to what to do, and to be able, to, if they have alternative accommodation, they should not be forced to give them accommodation within a five-kilometer radius of where they were. I mean, there's no link between the two. I mean, one understands the convenience, but you know, you can't expect a municipality, particularly, to suddenly provide for three thousand odd people five kilometers away from where they had chosen. To live, I mean, it's tragic, but I mean that's part of the problem that the uh, that the government faces. The other thing I want to suggest is stop calling anything operation anything because it doesn't help. Just get on with the damn job and do it, and and make sure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. Herman, your thoughts? I think it just shows that the government there, there isn't anything new that the government should start doing. There's only it's either start doing the stuff that you're already supposed to be doing or stop doing the stuff you're doing. There's no reason for the government to accrue itself new powers, to give itself new responsibility or new operations, anything. It is just about doing the basics right. And if Ramaphosa ever has the goal to ever refer to his cabinet as fit for purpose, after he has faced so many reshuffles and you have absolute dunces still there, uh, like Ndiwe Zulu, like Becky Kele, it, it, it really, yeah, it, it just says that, you know, the, the, just, we will pay you to stop whatever you are doing 
um, and give other people a chance. Because frankly, I mean, my schnauzer will be better at this. It is fit for purpose, Herman. It's just it's not the purpose that we should mention on a family program. <laughs> yeah, well, that's I couldn't say it better myself. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, I hope that you found the show interesting. We will be back tomorrow with a daily friend wrap. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>